0: You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi senator Let's connect over coffee.
1: Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special guest on a very important topic, Dr. Laurie Spuzak. So Dr. Spuzak is gynecologic oncologist and palliative medicine physician at KU Cancer Center. She is deeply committed to leveraging her privilege as a physician to serve women and to promote women's health, whether it is in her clinical practice, as an educator, as a researcher or in her several leadership roles. So Dr. Spuzak cultivates a clinical practice and research focus and supportive care driven by patient reported outcomes for all her patients. So she's here with us today to talk about the critical role of palliative care in overcoming ovarian cancer. So grab your favorite coffee or your beverage. I have mine, although mine is almost finished. There we go. Seal for teal. I love that. Um, as we chat with Dr. Spuzak and all things palliative care in ovarian cancer. And if you have any questions, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it or try to get it addressed post the discussion. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Spuzak, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. You are a friend and you've been uh, an amazing champion. So thank you for being such a great um, supporter of Overcome as well. Thank you
0: so much for for having me um yeah i feel like uh we met back in uh, 2017 i think was the first or something like like so yeah i I really appreciate that you keep reaching out and that uh, we've been working together since then. So,
1: Thank you. So, um, and Dr. Spužek, I have, obviously I have a lot of questions uh, um, on this a very important topic, but before we even delve into the details, um, tell us briefly, what is palliative care and why don't we talk about it as much as we should?
0: Two really important questions. So palliative care by... I ask my patients when they come to their first visit, what did your doctor tell you about palliative care? And there's a lot of mythology about what palliative care is. Um, The most contemporary definition of palliative care is that we work on the quality of life with patients who have a serious illness. Uh, We work, it could be at the beginning of care. It could be in the middle, it could be at the end. Um, and I'll, I'll talk more about that as we get into our questions. Um, but our primary goal is to do whatever we can do to optimize your quality of life while you're being treated for whatever serious illness. And in my case, I take care of people with cancer. And so that is my focus, but palliative care, um, can manage many different serious illness that has to do with heart failure, um, uh, um, you know, COPD, uh, uh, other conditions that have to do with your nerves and neuro neurological conditions like de- dementia or Lou Gehrig's disease, and uh, and we work alongside your uh, typical practitioner that takes care of that central disease, and we think how can we. Uh, do better for your quality of life with all of these other tools and skills that we have to work on your quality of life around that illness. So yeah, so that's uh, that's the brief, the brief example of what it is. Yeah.
1: So so since this is so critical, that was my second point. Why don't we talk about palliative care as much? You think?
0: So actually, I think it goes back to the history of of of, and the origin story of palliative care. Palliative care was born out of the modern hospice movement, which kind of came around between the 60s and the 80s. Um, The modern hospice hospice movement was developed mostly in England with a person named James Cicely Saunders. She's credited uh, talking about the concepts of total pain and total care for patients. So that we can't treat suffering unless we address all these different domains of a, of a patient's um, care and and pain so social pain physical pain emotional pain spiritual pain and she created places where people could receive care who had serious illnesses and so that that's where this whole movement sort of started and so it started most mostly at the end of life and in fact the definition of what palliative care does has evolved slowly over time as more and more research has come out that has shown if you use these skill sets and this approach to care earlier and earlier in the disease process for people who have serious illness even for those who have curative intent, that actually you can improve overall quality of life, sometimes improve survival, improve caregiver health and uh, mental health and wellness, and imp- you know, and just overall improve. So what is quality of life? Overall improve your symptoms, your function, your social support, your psychological health, um, that, exposing someone to palliative care earlier and earlier in the disease process has now been shown in research to to improve overall globally the quality of life of people. And so as palliative care research has built, so has the definition and it's expanded. And so historically, it used to be one thing, most of the physicians who probably are out there treating still believe that palliative care is for the end of life. And that it's that it and that it is hospice care, palliative care. Doctors are trained to deliver both palliative care in the outpatient clinic and hospice care, um, and it's just become so much bigger. So, um, so. Part of our job now in the palliative care community, part of our work is to re-educate people, not just patients, but also doctors um, and and caregivers, so that we make sure that everyone has access to high-quality palliative care in the outpatient clinic, at home, in the hospital setting, and then our transition to high-quality hospice
1: care at the end of life wonderful you have you gave such a wonderful overview between the two but so this brings me to my next question so I'll just you know briefly ask you if there was one critical like in one summary sentence you could um differentiate between hospice and palliative care um, and share it with our overcomers how would you Define or you know interestingly?
0: The approach to care from the skill sets that I possess is the same, a commitment to quality of life. Hospice, however, is a benefit that happens when people have entered the dying phase of their illness, whatever that is. We have tools as healthcare providers to prognosticate or foretell the future in time that someone might have that if their disease takes its usual and expected course, that you are approaching the end of life on the order of months of time. When you are approaching the end of life on the order of months, you become eligible for something called hospice plan of care, which does a lot of things for people, um, such as provide high quality symptom directed care, social work services, chaplaincy, and a physician or nurse oversees that whole plan of care. We know that in many medical conditions, that if you have a prognosis that is determined by how functional you are, really that's the driving factor of determining prognosis. that if your function has waned to a point, for example, in cancer care, where you're spending more than half of the day in the bed or the chair, that you have a diminished appetite, that your energy is very poor, that actually you will live longer on symptom-directed care rather than taking more disease-directed treatment like chemotherapy or radiation therapy, that in fact, things like hospice care actually allow people to live longer and better. And so um, and so hospice is really uh, a place, uh, and and when I say a place, it's actually a philosophy of care because hospice can happen in many places. It can happen in the home setting. It's actually the most common 70% of hospice happens at home. It can happen in a hospice house or a, an intensive hospice setting where someone has symptoms that are not manageable in the home setting. And they need really, it's almost like in an ICU for hospice care for symptom management. It can happen in a nursing home alongside care at a nursing facility, but um, hospice is a philosophy of care for those folks who have been determined to be in the dying phase of their illness. Thank so you. Palliative care, yeah, and and so I'll just say, and palliative care is
1: everything else. So yeah, I- and we are going to go into that uh, in very. <laughs> very detailed. So um, yeah. just one question, as you were talking about hospice here, and thank you so very much for, you know, all the, those wonderful clarifications. So you, uh, you described it in a very beautiful way when, as physicians or care teams, you you determine that the patient is at that point where the treatment is going to be worse than just, you know, um, management, right? So is that, is that decision, generally speaking, is that decision primarily taken by the care teams or is it like a... Um, joint decision made with the survivor and the overcomer in the and the caregivers obviously in the family members or um how does that typically in your experience happen yeah i'll i'll just share if i when i'm putting my
0: hat on that's my gina my gina hat right um how how does that look in clinic right um i see a patient that i've worked with for a very long time that we've been doing many cycles of chemotherapy. We've gone through surgery, for example, if someone had an ovarian cancer. Um, And I see that all of a sudden things have shifted. I take a step back. All of a sudden, uh, I see that they're no longer walking into clinic. They're arriving in a wheelchair. Their family tells me that they're having trouble with dressing themselves or bathing themselves. Um, they're not eating very well. Uh, they feel really tired all the time. Mm-hmm. And I and I, these are all clues. I, I tell people in my palliative care and in my oncology clinic, like, I will see it when you walk in the door, when I know that you have entered the dying phase of illness. It doesn't have to do with a CAT scan, It doesn't have to do with your CA-125 value or your labs. It has to do with the story of how you have been doing in your life, the one that you're willing to share and also that your family is willing to share, and then how you're able to even move your body to come into clinic, right? Um, That is when I know this person is too sick for more treatment. And we talk about that I am worried that their time is short. And that if I give them the same thing we've been doing this whole time, which is more chemotherapy, I actually think that I will take time
1: away from them Mm -hmm. instead of giving them more time. Thank you, appreciate that very much. And so um, in terms of palliative care being recommended, right, to, so tell us, is it recommended for a specific group of patients and who benefits the most from palliative care and how can our overcomers go about seeking this type of care? So this is a really great
0: question. And and I'll say also that research is sort of evolving about who's, who's the best candidate for palliative care. First of all, I would say if you can get access to outpatient palliative care, meaning palliative care in your clinic, in your cancer center, or wherever it happens in your health system, that's the best place to start it. Most palliative care is offered in the hospital when people are in crisis, and that's the most common, but it's a growing system of care that's now available in the clinic setting. And that that is where it's the most bang for the buck, okay? Because the longer you're exposed to palliative care, the better you will do on treatment and off treatment. and be more resilient in your life. Um, so, uh, say more. Say your question one more time, and and I'm going to go back to it again because I I forgot the the full
1: question. No, no, that's fine. I was just asking that who who, who benefits who, the most, and yeah, I, how do you identify I, that? Who benefits the most? So there's a couple of things that
0: there was a statement made by the. Uh, You know, Association uh, or the American Society of Clinical Oncology and then also the Society for Gynecologic Oncology and all the other cancer uh, groups kind of come, come to agree with this statement that suggests that anyone who has an advanced cancer should be offered palliative care what we know is that there are many people out there who are living with stage 3 or 4 cancer who you might call advanced or even recurrent cancer that you might call advanced who are really living highly functional lives have no have no deficits are cruising through their chemo or whatever and and really unless you know them well you might not detect that they have cancer or being treated with cancer so is stage alone enough? Probably not. What we've seen now and more like getting into it trials where people are getting more into the weeds of like who benefits the most. It's usually those folks who have an advanced cancer that also have some kind of moderate to severe symptom. And, and that those folks are really going to benefit a lot. Other folks who really benefit are if and, and those symptoms, by the way, could be physical, but they could also be emotional. Um, co- having trouble coping with cancer, mm-hmm. um, having trouble with needing, uh, needing to clarify decision-making, complex communication, f- family and patients being at odds yeah. with like decision-making or provider and patient being at odds and needing someone to help them walk through complex decision-making. Um, The the other thing we know is that when somebody has certain types of cancer, their prognosis or time, like we were talking about forecasting time, is gonna be shorter than those folks who have other types of cancers. So one example is if you have a platinum refractory ovarian cancer, okay, meaning you are no longer sensitive to a platinum-based chemotherapy, your time is most likely going to be shorter, on the shorter side. And so that person having that diagnosis uh, of platinum, platinum sort of refractory or resistant, you know, ovarian cancer, that person should consider, or that doctor should consider referring that patient to palliative care because most likely their disease will be incurable and time is going to be shorter in that window of sort of 6 to 24 months right like um so so we encourage at that interval to think about palliative care consultation another another thing that i think of that can be very helpful is around complex surgery that's very very aggressive very morbid, meaning many complications that you might face or physical um, physical debilities. So, things like a pelvic exenteration procedure where we remove all the GYN organs, the bladder, the rectum. Um, many folks who are going into those surgeries already have a high burden of symptoms and they need a lot of symptom management, pain management, psychological support to make it through on the other side. So there's folks who I've seen in palliative care, even though they're cured of their cervical cancer after the exenteration procedure, they have complex pain and psychological issues that need to continue to be managed, even even in the cure state, right? And so these are specific to GYN uh, reasons to think about palliative care, yeah.
1: Thank you. So going a little bit deeper into this, so, Tell us about, you know, some of the elements that are included in, uh, you know, palliative care. Yeah, what do
0: we do? What's the secret in the yeah? E- exactly. Yeah. What, are, yeah.
1: what are some of the yeah. elements? Who is on this palliative care team? Right. And for how long is their uh, care received and e- anything else that oh, you would okay. like to share? A palliative
0: care visit is initiated in the outpatient setting. So I see a new person. Um, The visits are 60 minutes when they first come in versus uh, 30 minutes usually for follow-up. The structure of the visit typically in our practice starts with a symptom assessment uh, using something called the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Scale where we go through objectively, meaning you must report on a number scale zero to 10, how are nine different symptoms, pain, nausea, constipation, fatigue, depression, anxiety, and then overall, what's your sense of well-being? How's your appetite? You know, all these things. What we've learned, this is really important that we do this tool every time. What we've learned is if we don't exactly ask someone, what is the symptom? What is the score? Actually, people underreport symptoms like really severely. And, um, and also what we've noticed is that if you ask someone in their oncology clinic, they're also going to they're gonna be apt to say much less because the oncologist is the gatekeeper to chemotherapy or more treatment or surgery. And so most folks put on their best self when they come to oncology clinic practice. Um, and I-, I That's be
1: interesting for you as being both together, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I apologize. I just uh, was getting a, a text page cause I'm on call, but everything is okay. <laughs> um, Anyway, so yes, actually, I always refer my patients to another palliative care doctor because I think it's a conflict of interest. If, if my patients see me or I think that I can do palliative care in my oncology clinic, it's just not possible. There's not enough time. When I'm in oncology clinic, my headspace is in, do the exam. Think about chemo dosing. Look at the labs. Think about toxicity so that I change the dose of chemo. When I'm in the palliative care clinic, I'm exploring the world of the patient. I take time to think about the symptoms. How is your family? How is your function? Um, What are you doing in your day? We go through a really intensive um, list of their medicines and figure out what's working, what's not working for symptoms for all these different things. Um, So it's, it's very, It's very different and we have the time to indulge in that in the palliative care clinic where you just don't have enough time in the context of an oncology visit to really do that the right amount of attention. So if I have a patient who has a moderate to severe symptom, anything like that, I might initiate something that's called primary palliative care where I can get palliative care going for someone. But when it becomes complex in that moderate to severe range, I refer to a palliative care doctor.
1: Yeah. Sense. So as we are talking about side effects of treatments, right? That there are two key side effects that we keep hearing from our overcomers, right? So one is the the fear of the cancer coming back, yeah. fear of recurrence, and yeah, then the neuro- and the neuropathy, yeah. right? Two yeah. things. So we yeah. understand one is mental, the other is physical, but both, I mean both equally debilitating, right? So how would palliative care, how does palliative care typically address these concerns in a typical setting?
0: That's that's great. They're very different, but great examples. So um, I'm probably going to ask you to tell me this, the two again after yes, I answer first. the first. Okay. So I'll tackle neuropathy first. Okay. Chemo-induced um, neuropathy that happens for a lot of our patients happens because of the drugs that we expose people to. So um, particularly taxol, paclitaxel, or cisplatin give people neuropathy. And what we know is that genetics have a role in it. Some people experience it severely, like they get one dose and they're knocked over with neuropathy. And also if you have pre-existing conditions like diabetes and diabetic neuropathy that's poorly controlled, it also sets you up for worse neuropathy. So what do we do in palliative care clinic? Um, We look through your medicines and see what you're already taking to manage your pain. Okay, neuropathy is a nerve-related pain syndrome. So I optimize people on a neuropathic pain medicine first. And you will be surprised, or many people are surprised to know that the best thing for chemo-induced neuropathy is duloxetine, which is an antidepressant, anti-anxiety drug that works on nerve pathways called S- SNRI, all right? And it is actually the only evidence-based medicine for neuropathy that for, that's cancer specific related to chemotherapy. However, we also use the tools that have been established and borrowed from, for example, diabetic-induced neuropathy, medicines like gabapentin, things like that. But that's just medicines, okay? The other thing is physical function. So optimizing referrals for uh, physical therapy and rehab is one of the first things that I do with my, with my patients. Uh, it is extremely important. So uh, getting your body moving, working with a physical therapist throughout your cancer treatment, especially if you have things like severe fatigue or neuropathy can be life-changing for people. And, uh, and a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'll do the exercises myself. And, and then they just don't. You need a coach. Uh, it, it, it is worth it to pay for a coach to help you get your body moving and to get exercises to move your hands and feet um, so that you are resilient through that neuropathy. Um, your doctor, your oncology doctor can change your doses of your chemo or choose another medicine altogether. But these are the things we can do from the palliative care side. Um okay, and the
1: second one was scan anxiety. Yes, no, before I go to the second one, I have a build-up question on the neuropathy. And so all the um, you know, the uh, suggestions that you just gave, just from again from your overall experience, um, in doing so, what percentage of neuropathy is actually minimized or controlled? Uh, or is it hundred percent or is it majorly? Okay.
0: I can't say because everyone is so different. And like I said, genetics have a part in it and it has to do with where you are in your chemo as well. If you're not, if you're at the end of chemo and you're recovering from neuropathy, um, usually it takes six months to see how you will do uh, off of chemo, how much recovery you can make. Some people, it's a full recovery. Some people have severe deficits. Some people have um, a significant improvement. It's actually totally individual how you will do there are times when the neuropathy is so severe we must use opioids as part of the pain medicine regimen. That's less common, but it's possible. Um and and it all all has to be do with the individual. I wish I could tell you a percentage, it's just impossible because there's too many factors at play in what happens with the individual person.
1: Yeah. True. Yes, thank you. No, the second part of this was the fear of the cancer coming back. So it's just the the fear of the recurrence that is yeah. most on everyone, so
0: it, which is really common. Um, it's extremely common, and anyone who's had a serious illness doesn't matter if it's cancer is always afraid of that trauma revisiting, right? Um, and so, what do we do? Uh, part of my job, once a crisis is is sort of managed, the crisis being pain or or whatever, is actually very much life coaching and figuring out how people can in their daily life practice be in control of the things they can control. So creating a stable life practice so that they have tools for coping that are healthy tools for coping. Denial is an is a is not a great long-term tool for coping. <laughs> right? Um, it's not just a river in Egypt. Um, so So we talk about many other tools for coping, spiritual practice, um, having psychological assistance or help. So that that could either be doing counseling in our palliative care visit, or if it's really severe psychological support that's needed, going into oncopsychology, who are our teammates that really delve into, um, you know, the anxiety and depression management uh, through a therapy based approach. And if it's still even more severe, I will initiate medicines to help with anxiety and depression, but I will not continue to manage them when, if it got severe or extreme, right. And so then I would refer to a psychiatrist as well, but also just if, if things are not that severe, figuring out the ways of getting your life oriented towards the things you can control at all times. So you can control what you eat. You can control how you move. You can control your chores. You can control um, your social experience. So seeing people, um, making sure you uh, have have a dinner set up the day that you have your scan. So whatever the results are, it doesn't matter that you still give yourself credit for doing all the work you have done to take care of yourself and your body and you honor the work that you have done. Um, We talk about different um, mindfulness or breathing exercises so that folks can control that anxiety um, by managing where that reactive energy goes. Uh, We can't take it away for a hundred percent but you can't think your way out of anxiety and panic. The only way you can get it out is through the breath, through movement, through talking things through with other people, through prayer, through, you know, through all of these other actions. You can't think your way out of anxiety. And denial also, it doesn't get rid of that energy that's cycling around in the body, right? You have to do something with that energy. And, and so part of my job is to help people sort of make a list, learn tools, provide them links to things like on, on access to things on YouTube, on, on the internet websites, you know um, also resource centers in, in whatever town, like at KU um, we have something called turning point. Uh, many towns have Gilda's club, which are resource centers for folks who are suffering from serious illness and their families and give people ways to figure out um things that they can do to keep themselves accountable so that they lead they lead a great life and are prepared for when those moments come up that are really challenging, that derail you and hope that they don't derail you quite as badly the next time because you have skills to cope. and um and also, I'm always there, right? If they're in palliative care visits, I tell them like they're like, oh well I want to have a visit, I have a scan coming up. I'm like, perfect. Like I'm here for you after I'm here for you before whatever happens, I know that you've got this. Right. Um, and, and so anyway, these are, these are the things we do. It's a lot of life coaching too. And when we're finished with crisis management, which is a lot of how people come to palliative care, then we continue working together for life coaching to make sure that everyone is optimizing all the time, their goal setting, thinking about the future, thinking about how they're gonna use the body that they made feel good by doing all the work we've done together in
1: palliative care, right? Um, Absolutely. So. And you said something very important uh, and I caught on to that because, you know, you said do, the, do things that you can control very well and leave no regrets on that, right? So that's my um, underlying philosophy in life, whether it be cancer or life or any kinds of crisis, right? So I'm like, I'm just going to do what I can do best, whether it be health or it be emotions or something else. And then there are certain situations beyond all of our control. We cannot do that, but at least not have regrets that I could have done this better, right? The things that you could potentially control. So, really important point. Thank you. Um, so, I was recently reading an article that talked about the key dimensions to the patient and caregiver relationship uh, for decision making in palliative care. So, and you spoke very briefly about that in the in the beginning. So, in light of that, please discuss how how care partners should be involved. Um, by the providers in making effective decisions in palliative care treatment? And um, what do you see as the barriers to adoption?
0: Well, people are very lucky if they have a companion in treatment. And I think that, uh, and a companion in treatment being a caregiver that can witness and support and be available for all of of the things that they need. Some people have that, and some people do not have that. Those who are so lucky that they have a caregiver who can show up for them, what's important? We always invite them to palliative care visits, not just oncology visits, come to the palliative care visits, understand what we're about, understand the medicines. Many times people are on so many different medicines, and we really deep dive into how you're meant to be taking it, how you keep a journal of your medicine and your symptom. Caregivers are hugely important in that, making sure that pills don't run out, right? And someone's in a crisis. They're they're so important in that. But then also it is part of my practice that I ask the caregiver point blank, how are you doing? Are you getting the support you need? How can I help you the best? This is a unit of care that's happening. It is not just the patient getting care. It's the family, it's everyone getting care. What do you need? Does our social worker need to reach out to you because things are getting too physically burdensome and you need a caregiver support at home. We'll see what we can do. We now have a palliative care social worker in our practice in the outpatient clinic. And so now we have this luxury of making sure that, um, that we can reach out to the families to see, you know, what else, what else do they need? What kind of support? So, and decision-making. So what we know is that people have, if, if, for example, somebody is walking through a serious illness, that the family and the patient will experience that with the least amount of trauma if they're both in line with their opinions and belief systems about what's happening and feel good about the decisions that are happening. And that's true if you're going to be cured or if you're dying of that illness, that everyone is on the same page and supporting the voice of the patient um, who is at the core of it but they're not malaligned. No one is trying to make that that person feel bad about their decision-making and and that everyone hears the voice of that patient. So part of my job in palliative care is being a medical interpreter sometimes. Sometimes it's being an advocate. Sometimes it's like being a peacemaker. Sometimes, um, and just because sometimes people like, make different decisions with their heart and their brain. (laughs) Yes. And they want different things from the heart and the brain, right? Like they, um, you know, something is the right thing, but my heart is saying, no, I don't want to let go or something like that. Right. Um, so part of my job is to facilitate those kinds of relationships, whether it's a small thing about um, making sure that patient has their pain management because the caregiver is afraid of opioids or someone you know vice versa someone's afraid of opioids or it's at the end of life right like that we talk about hey we we're worried you're entering the dying phase of illness and things are different for the first time is everyone aware does everyone see what what do you want for yourself right now knowing that time is short does everyone respect that right in your care team and so it's like little things to big things. We're there to sort of help everything gel so that people um, have an opportunity to make decisions in peace and, um, and feel like they're really, they're living the best quality of life with the least amount of stress that they're upsetting someone else in their world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So, um, as you said in the beginning, that the uh, palliative care um, field is evolving, right? And, and yeah. new advances are happening. So uh, share some of the recent advances in palliative care and how is the field transforming itself to change the care landscape for, yeah. for overcomers?
0: I mean, I'll share, okay, <laughs> without dating myself too much. <laughs> I mean, when I was a resident at Columbia University, um, We did not have a palliative care doctor in the hospital working in the Columbia system until I was a third year resident. And so, gosh, when did I graduate from residency? I think it was 2012. So just imagine that, right? Like this is a world renowned academic institution that didn't have a palliative care provider working in the hospital. So think about how things have changed. Uh, since that time. I didn't know what palliative care was then. I saw so much suffering in the hospital. People, you know, taking chemo till the end of life, like things that were just not, they were inappropriate. People suffering without clear, uh, do you know what code status means? Like uh, decisions about how to handle your emergency care at the end of life. Um, Just lack of knowledge about all of these things. And um, and so think about how that that was when I was in training, and how things have changed so dramatically already at most academic centers. I think there was a study that said most NCI-designated cancer centers now, I, in the high '90s, have inpatient and outpatient palliative care. So outpatient palliative care, meaning I see you as a doctor in the clinic, didn't exist, right? Like in a system that didn't even have a palliative care doctor in the hospital to to manage crises right at the end of life or like when someone is in real distress because they're hospitalized and think about where we are now where there's outpatient clinic models for palliative care so things have changed so dramatically um, in in the last 20 years right um, and so where are we going what do i hope to see I, I really hope to see a value emphasis placed on how we keep people out of the hospital by tending to the world of the patient outside of just giving them treatment for that disease. And so what does that mean? It means really optimizing supports for all of, you know, the social support aspect of health, psychological support, physical function through physical therapy, rehab. Um, thinking about financial toxicity and cancer care, thinking about, um, so, and, and what's my little role in that as a palliative care doctor? It's, it's many times having, being a one place that can really coordinate all of that care and explore. I'm gonna, I'm gonna probe into that area because unfortunately in my oncology practice, I don't get enough time. I, that's just not allocated to oncology practice time to have enough time to both serve the disease and the whole world of the patient. It's very hard. It's very hard, near impossible because of the way that practices are set up. And so my job in palliative care is to offload that from the, from the treating doctor, right. From the oncologist and spend a lot of time examining all that other stuff around the cancer directed care that I can, help manage or guide consults to, and get optimized as much as possible. And I hope that that is something that we stop taking for granted because it really is the thing, it's the future of how we can truly change outcomes for our patients um, in cancer care. Because people are also, I'll just say, the largest growing group of patients, they're not being cured of their cancer they are living longer with cancer. They're living with cancer as a chronic illness that many times is coming back at random unexpected times. You're five years out, you're 10 years out and cancer might rear its head, right? It's like, um, or it never goes away, but you're highly functional. You're living a great life, but you're on treatment after treatment after treatment. And so this is the most common thing that Uh, I'm seeing that's different and new, that we're changing diseases that used to kill people into diseases that people are living with as sort of chronic illnesses. And how are we supporting those people? That's where we're falling short. We are caught off guard by all the advances in surgery, chemo, uh, immunotherapy, targeted therapy. And now we're like, oh my gosh, we have all of these women in Nock, for example, that are living so much longer, what do we do? How do we manage their survivorship? What does survivorship look like? Right. Um, what does it mean to continue to be on all these treatments to the body and to how do you age in cancer care, right? With cancer as a chronic illness. These are just things that are now coming to the forefront that we've never really thought of before um, because it used to be like, you're either cured at the beginning and that's it or you end up dying of your cancer. Now we're having these protracted courses of living with cancer that we just, we haven't seen enough of to know what to do with. And now we're all learning together about how to best serve um, this huge growing group of patients.
1: Yeah, that is, that is, so important what you just said is because the survivorship in general is increasing which is absolutely fabulous right so for everyone but at the same time it also means that several of these patients are living their best lives but at the same time they have side effects they have you know challenges that need to be addressed which can be done so well with palliative care so Uh, it has to evolve as a more important integral part of treatment as we go forward. I
0: completely agree. And 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 here's the other thing that I think is fabulous. Like I love it when I see someone really intensively and then I get to graduate them from yeah. palliative care. Yes. Not because they're dying, yeah. but because they're living really well, right? And then they can see me when they need me. Like, like that is the new future of palliative care and cancer care when people are living with chronic illness or living with cancers that go for many, many, many years or uncertain amounts of time, right? Is that palliative care is something that you can leave, you can come back to. It doesn't have to be something that, oh, this is like forever. No, like I I am a huge fan of decreasing the number of appointments that people have. <laughs> so You know, that's that's the interesting and exciting future, uh, I think, for palliative care for a lot of for a lot of our patients. And um, and so my my hope is that that only continues to grow and it grows in the right place, which is outpatients.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Thank you for sharing so much hope. And so you talked about financial toxicity. I'm going to come back to that question. So in general, um, what insurance considerations, if any, um, should patients consider prior to signing up for palliative care? And if palliative care is not offered at their institutions, how may our overcomers still kind of seek it elsewhere? Are there any, any online programs or other things? that you would want to share with us? Oh,
0: so palliative care is a medical doctor, right? Or a nurse practitioner, it's a specialty. And so if you have insurance, you have access to palliative care. Okay. The gatekeeper, unfortunately, many times is the doctor putting a referral in. And, and like we've sort of talked about a little A lot of doctors have old-fashioned ideas about what palliative care is and has to offer their patients. So many times it really takes self-advocacy to know, hey, oh my gosh, this symptom is really bad and I feel like I'm really suffering. I need palliative care and to ask for it, right? And to ask for a referral um, and to get a referral to palliative care. Um, And actually that's, that's a growing number of people who are reaching out personally to get access to palliative care. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, So what if your institution doesn't have it? So most institutions now have inpatient palliative care services. So if you're in a crisis in the hospital, but um, it is less likely if you're not affiliated with like an NCI designated cancer center that you have outpatient palliative care practice. So what can you access? So it depends on the institution you're at. Um, Sometimes sometimes institutions have pain management centers if your symptom is specific to pain. Sometimes institutions have oncology psychology programs or just seeing a psychologist in general or not even a psychologist, a licensed clinical therapist. um, But throughout your cancer care journey can be extremely rewarding for for folks walking through the journey and their caregivers so that they can have another layer of support that, um, that walks alongside them in the journey. So basically I would sort of like divide the components of what we deal with, right? And think about what you do have access to locally so that you get yourself in there for a referral um, and you get yourself treated. Physical therapy. Um, other Other things that I think are beneficial, not curative, but can help with symptoms are complementary medicine things like acupuncture has been proven to help with nausea, with pain, things like that. Um, um, I'm I'm just thinking about all the other services, you know, you sort of can learn about through like Gilda's Club, support support, uh, centers, um, uh, personal, getting massage, doing things for your body to be kind to yourself, uh, looking for support groups. Figuring out ways to connect yourself and all the different ways that palliative care might point you to or teach you about. um, Those those are things you can do if you don't have an outpatient palliative care doctor available to you. Um, Other other ways of sort of like finding out more information, the Center to Advance Palliative Care. And then there's another sort of like campaign called Get Palliative Care you can find a lot of information online about, um, maybe there's providers locally, maybe there's this and that. Um, And then I would just say that if you are in the dying phase of illness and you are referred, for example, in many rural communities, they don't really have like outpatient palliative care, but they sure do have hospice plans of care and programs that can help them with complex symptom support at that time it is pretty rare now, I would say, to have a county, even in the most rural parts of this country, without hospice yeah. services. And so um, and so, if that's the part of your journey that you are in at the end of life, then also knowing that a hospice plan of care is there for most people, and it's a benefit for any insurance. And even if you have no insurance, most hospices have Charity care that they provide at that time of life, so um, yeah. so those are the ways, the strategies that I would sort of think about getting access to either palliative care or the skill sets that palliative care has to offer.
1: Yeah. So uh, we talked about you know the survivorship increasing, and which is you know we talked about how fabulous that is, and also the challenges that it brings. Right. So um, for for overcomers that are out of treatment. Yeah. Um, they're in the remission phase, right? But the side effects are still continuing. And you spoke, you touched upon this. Um, there they could be years out, but they're still mm-hmm. you know, feeling those side effects. So, for those categories of patients, what kind of palliative care is available? And, you know, what can you share about yeah. how they could seek it? So
0: this is actually the hottest topic now. And I think a lot of outpatient palliative care clinics. So you don't have an active cancer, but you still have a really high burden of symptoms. You see this a lot. I was actually just at um, an ear, nose and throat grand rounds where the speaker was a palliative care doctor who does, you know, otolaryngology. And so she's a surgeon, but she's a palliative care doctor too. And she's like, there's many of our patients who should never leave palliative care. Even if they are cured of their disease, the side effects of surgery, treatment, radiation, having a a device forever, like a trach or a feeding tube uh, in that case, like these are folks who constantly need to be in palliative care. So this is a big conversation we're having on the clinic level, but also on the national level about how does palliative, what is the role of palliative care in complex symptom management after cancer treatment if somebody is cured of their disease, because we're in a crisis also of not having a lot of palliative care doctors. So how do we use that precious resource? Do we train more uh, primary care doctors to deliver what what we call like primary palliative care or the basics, right, of palliative care? So all the symptom management and things like that. Do we um, continue specialty survivorship clinics for folks who do have a high burden of symptoms after they've been treated? Um, Or, you know, like what, what, where does that go? So that's a a huge conversation that's happening and there's not a great answer right now. Um, I would say that part of thinking about just like globally things that anyone can do for themselves and their bodies are optimizing their physical function and whatever that looks like for you, um, if that requires a referral to physical therapy, ask for it. Um, don't be shy. Move your body. It will be, it is truly the gateway to managing so many symptoms it is moving the body in whatever way you can. And I'm not just biased to people who can walk without a walker or a wheelchair. I mean, anyone, anyone needs physical therapy, right? After, after cancer uh, treatment, if they're debilitated working with uh, psychologists and uh, social workers to optimize all the world of your life outside of that cancer care. So if it has to do with your finances, what kind of services are you uh, eligible for? Take advantage of the things that your insurance does and doesn't cover, right? Like just think about all the things that people are reluctant to explore. Most folks are really reluctant to explore these things. And, um, And maybe, I don't know, are waiting for people to offer them, but really, that's not how healthcare happens. It happens that you really have to demand them because um, it is very easy for an insurance company to say no and to ignore. Right? That's like they don't want to. They don't want to waste their money. Right? They want to. They want to keep their money. So you have to demand these things for yourself. Um, things that are not covered by insurance: acupuncture, massage, um, and if you are highly functional and you don't need physical therapy getting out to do um, programmed exercise, Tai Chi, yoga, body movement, mindfulness practice, all of these things can be very restorative and help you manage the trauma that you went through psychologically, but also physically that your body is holding um, so that
1: you can get the stress out of you
0: and um, move forward with your life.
1: Yeah. You know, mind and body they are connected, right? They're not working in silos. So it's very important to integrate. And yeah. like you said, I mean, if you get what is out in your heart out, and you, then chances are that your body will be at better peace. Um,
0: Absolutely. Well. And a lot of folks, it's really interesting. Um, I I also want to say that about spiritual practice too, whatever that looks like for you. when When folks get ill, interestingly, you know, you think your spiritual practice, um, that's where you should run to when you get ill, but a lot of people retreat from their spiritual practice because of shame, um, wanting to not let people know guarding what's happening, things like that. And in fact, like that's another place again, to get support and resilience, um, is in your spiritual practice. So all of these domains of life, um, that whole, the total suffering, right. That we do as human beings on this earth, um, in all of the ways that you can address that in your everyday, in your everyday life and make it number one, your first priority, um, make yourself number one, not work, even though you love your family, not your family, even though you love your kids, not your kids, you know, even though you love your work, not your work, like all of these things, instead of, Instead of making them number one, having self-compassion, learning self-compassion and making yourself number one, even for a moment, right, um, is is the most important thing you could do for yourself um, in your recovery and, um, a- and building that into your day like mercilessly
1: <laughs> that is so beautiful thank you for sharing that and so a great discussion and I've asked you a lot of questions uh what have I missed asking you that you would like to mention honestly you've done a great job I'm, I'm so
0: appreciative I'm so grateful for your curiosity I um I think you've had really generous questions that really got to the heart of what happens in palliative care visits um we love our patients. I love my palliative care clinic. Um, I have fun in it. It is a place of joy. We have some tears, right? But there's lots of laughter. Um, and, and so the more people can know about like the substance of the palliative care clinic and visit and that it is a place not to be afraid of, but to come to, to know that it's a place of true caregiving. That um, and it's a place where we are committed to living well together. Um, that is the most important thing that you could do for our community of cancer patients, survivors, and their caregivers. Um, yeah,
1: that that I could ask for. So thank you so much. Thank you. And so just in closing, uh, what parting message would you like to give to our overcomers that are listening today and focusing on their well-being and uh, and to be at the center of their own treatment? Uh, I can only
0: say, uh, please give yourself the gift like you are a baby at the center of the universe of living well and listening to your heart and putting yourself first. It is the greatest gift you could give yourself, but also the world around you.
1: And so that's what I wish for everyone out there and you, Oh, Thank you so very much. This was a fabulous discussion, Dr. Spuzak. I mean, you brought all the elements of uh, palliative care. You talked about hospice, you talked about just you know this beautiful relationship that the provider and the and the patient and their family members can have together, and uh, you know in in cheers and in tears that we can overcome together, right? So the, with that message, um, we uh, we are very appreciative of your time and uh, you know for for sharing all this invaluable insights with us today. And so, overcomers, I know again this was um, this was a fabulous episode as we always have all these episode guests coming and talking about such wonderful things and. And sharing their time and invaluable knowledge with, with us so i hope you um, enjoy this conversation and as i always say please share these insights far and wide with anyone who may benefit from these pearls of wisdom dr spuzak just shared with us and um, we'll be back with our next episode of connect over coffee very soon until then you keep well keep inspiring and keep overcoming thank you and bye bye thank you
0: Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors GSK and Clovis Oncology and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support.